This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Becky Morgan, Randy Pond, Lisa Sonsini, and Silver Lake. Special thanks to our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Friends of Sing Kong, Friends of Webb McKinney, Eris Communications, Deloitte, and HP Inc., and to our Truth, Love, and Reconciliation Dialogue series sponsor, Destination Home. Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. In November of 2018, American Leadership Forum hosted a retreat called Leading with Purpose with special guests Ellen Grace O'Brien, author and spiritual director of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California, and her friend Ila Gandhi, founder of the Gandhi Development Trust in South Africa that continues the nonviolence work of her grandfather, Mahatma Gandhi. As the retreat was set to begin, ALF Senior Fellow and County Supervisor Dave Cortezzi walked in with his own special guest, Dolores Huerta co-founder of the United Farm Workers Movement and renowned nonviolence leader in her own right. The women had never met before, and we at ALF couldn't resist the opportunity to host an impromptu dialogue with Ellen, Ela, and Dolores, facilitated by Supervisor Cortezzi, on what keeps them leading with purpose in tireless pursuit of a nonviolent world. We share this historic meeting and conversation with you all. Enjoy. I'm so glad that the three of you have been able to get together all in the same room, um, essentially otherwise thousands of miles apart, two global uh, nonviolence activists who have led probably two of the top three most significant nonviolence movements in the history of the world together in one room here in Scotts Valley is is pretty amazing to me. How about a big round of applause for them? I can only imagine the trek to, to get here, Ela, and you know the effort and the commitment to be here um, all week, and then travel to other places to continue your efforts. Um, as as to Dolores, she's speaking pretty much in a different city every day of the week this week. Two of which are, I shouldn't say, a different city, back and forth to San Jose a couple of times in the process. She decided yesterday juggling her schedule that she would get on the ace train herself in Stockton at 6 30 7 o'clock this morning so that she could get down to Deeridon station in San Jose so that she could catch a ride with me up here um so the question is what inspires all of you um to continue to lead with purpose Uh, to get up at 6.30 in the morning, to travel across the country, to keep this busy schedule. All of you do it. I'm familiar enough with with what you do. Um, Where's where's that inspiration come from? There's always so much more happening than, and I mean good. (laughs) There's always so much more happening than what we can see on the surface. And... When I was walking here this morning, I get these little, you know, one is an acorn, one is a little redwood cone, right? And I looked and it said a redwood tree annually produces um, six to eight million seeds. And of course, these aren't the seeds, the seeds are inside this, but they're so tiny um, that like 
eight million of them just just weighs about eight pounds or so that many seeds so um my spiritual teacher said to me that there is a power for good that runs this universe call it whatever you call it and we can learn to cooperate with that and that is really what we're here to do to learn how to cooperate with the highest good perhaps your grandfather would say cooperate with truth with a capital T and so I believe that's the mission we're on is to learn how to be um, in cooperation you can call it the evolutionary thrust on our planet the way of awakening um, but it is always greater than what we see in any given moment. And it's always at work. I, I think of it as divine grace. So I would like to point out, of course, I'm, I'm celebrating. This is really the first coming out for the book here with you. You're the first public recipients of it. But, um, you know, this gathering with Dolores and Ela was not, planned, right? I mean, it literally just came together spontaneously. The two people that I write about in this book as examples of what it means to live a prosperous life in terms of living your fullness, living your wholeness, and being an instrument that life can use for the well-being of others. The two women that I write about in this book are Ela and Dolores. <laughs> so I just offer that to you to say, pay attention to what you're dreaming. Pay attention to what captures your heart and follow it. Thank you so much for inviting me here. And I think, you know, one of the things that Gandhiji said was that we learn from each other. We don't have everything, all knowledge in our minds, ourselves. And if you read any of Gandhiji's books, what you will find on the first page is that Gandhiji says that he's not concerned about being consistent, that every day he's learning something new, and that whatever he has said in the past, he still, uh, you know, has the, um, he asks for, you know, the uh, ability and the freedom to change his mind. So in his book, if you read the first paragraph that he writes in all his literature, all the books that he's written, he says that if he is inconsistent, so if he has had a thought today, he reserves the right to change it tomorrow when he learns something new from people and from his interactions. And he is not going to remain, 
you know, consistent with what he said yesterday, just for the sake of re remaining consistent with an idea which with new knowledge he knows is an old idea and he wants to change it. So often we, you know, as human beings want to remain consistent. And I think that that's the first lesson that Gandhiji has taught and taught us, that it's important to remember that all of us are learning. And as we interact with each other, we learn new things. So these encounters are so important to learn new things. So firstly, I want to say when I come here, I haven't come just to speak and tell you something but to interact and learn from you as much as you may learn from what my experience has been. So I think for me that has been the most important thing even in my encounter with Ellen and today with Dolores and other people. And I think we learn as we interact with people. So today, that is what I have come here to do, to interact with people uh, and to learn new things, to learn new perspectives, and uh, so on. So I'm hoping that that is what will come out of this discussion. Thank you. I think what, um, what keeps me going is uh, trying to uh, always instill into people an understanding uh, that they have power. And uh, I think uh, when we talk about power, we usually think of power in a negative way. And uh, sometimes we feel, especially women, I want to say, uh, we sort of kind of shy away from that word that we think, because we think of power as being something uh, destructive. And, you know, Helen Keller said that uh, science has not found uh, the uh, solution for one of the world's greatest uh, illnesses or evils, and that is apathy. And uh, so when we look at the world around us and we see what is happening and uh, uh, we mourn that maybe only 50% of the people that could vote voted, you know, uh, that people that in, are in their communities can make a change, but they don't get involved. And uh, so to me, when I met Fred Ross Sr., and he showed me that that I could have power. And I'd like to tell this story, but i take a minute uh, to tell the story. And, uh, you know, I, there was a movie that was made about my work with the Farm Workers Union called Dolores by Carlo, it was produced by Carlos Santana. And in seeing that documentary, it kind of had a lot of flashbacks for me. And uh, I remember when we first started the Community Service Organization, which is an organization that Cecil and I belonged to uh, before we started the United Farm Workers. And uh, Fred and I were in Stockton. That's where we organized a chapter of that group. And there was a, a, a gentleman who came uh, to our office who had suffered a stroke. He was a farm worker. And he had, uh, he was on, on crutches. 
and he had a family. And so I was going to take him down to the welfare office so he could make an application uh, for disability. And when we went to the, to the office, the woman there would not let him make an application. And I didn't know what to do. I went back to the office and I said I couldn't help him uh, because this woman would not let us make an application. And Fred Ross said to me, you go down to that office right now and you demand to see his supervisor. And I thought, wow, I can do that? And now he didn't call ahead and say I was going. He didn't say I'm going to go with you. He said to me, you go down there right now. And so I did. I went down there with this gentleman and I demanded to see the supervisor and said they didn't let him make an application. And well, they had to let him make an application and he got his disability. Well, that to me was such a big sense of the fact that I could do that, that I had the power to be able to help this, this man. And, and it was just a, like a big light bulb. Now I had, you know, gone to college. I had been involved in a lot of social organizations, you know. I was a Girl Scout for 10 years, but uh, I had never knew, and I always wanted all these organizations, I belong to these social groups. Why can't we make changes? Why? And so Fred Ross taught me how you can make changes. And uh, doing that uh, organizing that we do, uh, how we formed the Farmworkers Union, and uh, you know, with uh, uh, getting together with people in their homes, like Tupperware, you know. I always like to say the word Tupperware because a lot of people can relate to that. A few people at a time, you know, six people, eight people, four people, and explaining to them how they can change the situations in their, in, in their communities and that they have the power to do it because people don't know they have the power to do that. And then once you, you show them pictures, like when Fred Ross, the house meeting that I went to, when I got organized, he showed us pictures of, of things that people were in big meetings, like this one. I had never seen more than 10 people in a meeting in my life. And uh, that they had uh, been able to bring in streetlights and sidewalks, clinics into their communities in East Los Angeles, and how they showed uh, clippings of how they had sent police to prison for beating up Mexican-American kids. And I thought, I want to belong to that organization, right? You know, because having suffered that same kind of police harassment in my community. And to me, so my, my purpose when I think about the more people I can reach, the more people I can talk to, the more people I can convince that they have power, I want to keep on doing it. You know, until every last breath that I can have the health and the energy to do it. So, and, and then also to, uh, to bring people the message about how to end racism and sexism and misogyny and homophobia in our society, uh, to, uh, to make people get that understanding. Uh, because I think a lot of people, when we think of why do we have so many, much racism in our society? Uh, cause people forget, number one, that we are one human family. I like to say that we are all, we are all Africans because this is where our, our human race began in Africa, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and we can kind of remind people who we are, that we're one human family. And then I, I guess I have to throw in real quick about the whole issue of nonviolence, which of Cesar Chavez, 
I was such a devotee of nonviolence. And I was too. I had read, when I was in college, I read everything I could about Gandhi. And since I'm quite old, you know, I remember Mahatma Gandhi uh, and, and followed everything that he was doing. And, uh, and, and when we put that philosophy into our movement of the farmers' movement, uh, when we had people that were being killed, people that were being beaten, and yet to be true to the whole issue of nonviolence and the kind of spiritual strength that that gives you. Uh, but, but, you know, I just want to add this in there, that, you know, in, in the Indian language, the word nonviolence, and I'm going to mispronounce it because I haven't used it recently. Satyagraha. Uh-huh. It, it's, it, it's, uh, it's an action word. And, and when we think again, I always think of the English language, what a violent language it is. And uh, so in English, we say non-violence. It's like two negatives, right? But And so we think of it sometimes, a lot of people think non-violence, non-violence means that you just don't do anything. You're, you're like a, uh, you're, you're, it's, it's got a very mild tone. But in the Indian language, the word for non-violence is an action word, you know? So it means that we have to act if we want to really promote nonviolence and teach it that it's got to be an action, something that we have to make it very intentional, right? Uh, so I, I guess I said a lot right there, but that's, that's kind great. of what my, I guess, the, the basis of, of my work. That's, that's wonderful. And I'd like to ask Ayla to pick up, if you don't mind, I mean, first of all, let me just say you can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> so don't be at all constrained about my questions. But I, I had written down here this, this difference between passive and, and active nonviolence, and certainly something we've heard so much from the, the Gandhi tradition over the years and been replicated by Dr. Martin Luther King, by Dolores and Cesar Chavez, um, you know, really the, the three major movements uh, around the world um, that best exemplified this, what Doris was just talking about. And if you wouldn't mind expanding on that a little bit, I have a colleague, Cindy Chavez, um, who many in the room know, but she'll wake us up sometimes around organizing because organizing, organizing by nature requires action, right? Mm-hmm. See, it, someone will give some polling or something like that and say, people are for this. And she will always say, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. And people who think we're in a bubble here in California and everything just goes the way it's supposed to go around immigration and all these issues, it doesn't. Um, and I just would like to hear you talk about the work you know, of, of being active. You're certainly an activist qualified to talk, tell us about that. Yeah, well, the first thing is that uh, Gandhiji didn't like the word nonviolence because it's a negative a word, non-violence. And so he then asked people to find a term that gives the true meaning of the um, action that he was advocating because he wasn't saying that you just don't do things, but he was actually, it was a very positive uh, terminology for him. So then the word satyagraha was coined. And that came out of a number of essays that people were asked to read because he advertised in his newspaper 
um, you know, for a term that can be used to describe the movement instead of describing it as nonviolent movement. Um, and so people were asked to write a little essay and come up with a name for that movement. And that's how the term Satyagraha came about. Now, Satyagraha means the force of truth. So it's a very active term. And um, when I say the force of truth, it's still doesn't describe the entire satyagraha, the word, the terminology, because in Sanskrit, it has much more power. And so, you know, it, uh, when, when you read about it, you get to know the full meaning of what this means. It's not just uh, the force of truth, but it is a much greater sort of philosophy that um, the word, the term uh, expresses. Now, for instance, in South Africa, we have a term Ubuntu. And many of you might have heard about that term. But again, there's a whole philosophy that's behind that term. So it's only one word, but it means a lot more. So in the same way, satyagraha, nonviolent struggle, is described as satyagraha, Gandhiji's nonviolent struggle. And when you look at the force of truth, which is how we would translate it, you would find that it, firstly, it's not a negative term. It doesn't say that you don't do certain things, but it actually says that you have to do much more in order to achieve something greater than what you see. So if you uh, want to change things, then you use Satyagraha as a methodology to change things. Um, and Satyagraha then has, uh, you know, comprises of a number of actions. So it's not, you know, like nonviolence now can be interpreted as being just absence of violence. So you sit back and you see a whole lot of things happening but you are not going to act because you are nonviolent. So you sit back and you, you watch all these things happening and do nothing about it. That's not what Gandhiji said. He said you have to act. So it's the force of action. The actual you know, word satyagraha means that you act. You begin, you don't just accept. When you see something, uh, you know, wrong happening, then it's a duty that you correct that. But you correct it in a nonviolent way. So nonviolence is the kind of action that you would take. It describes the methodology but it doesn't describe the fact that you 
have to do something about it. Don't accept um, an injustice or something wrong that is being done. So I know that on one occasion, for instance, you know, and this he writes about in his autobiography, that uh, when he came to South Africa, um, you know, uh, after he had criticized the uh, government for the strategies that the government was using, the racist strategies and so on that were happening in South Africa, he had criticized it when he was in India. He brought out a little pamphlet. And uh, so, um, largely the white community in South Africa had read reports of this. And the report was a bit distorted, the way it was, um, you know, communicated to the South African public. And so the white community in South Africa got very angry about this. And so when Gandhi returned to South Africa, they initially didn't allow the ship to dock uh, at the port. And after many days of negotiations between the shipping company and the government and the community, they were allowed to um, disembark. But what happened is that there was a whole group of uh, white people who wanted to attack Gandhi for what he had said because they felt that he had insulted the South African people and, um, you know, cast aspersions about them and so on. So there was a whole group of them who wanted to attack him. The company knew that this was going to happen, so they had sent his family away. And when he was um, asked to come down from the ship, he was um, found, you know, somebody recognized him and a mob tried to attack him. They did attack him, in fact. And it was the superintendent's wife who had an umbrella and she opened the umbrella and held it in front of Gandhi. And that's how she saved him from being further beaten up or killed even. And uh, the people then ran away from there. And that's how Gandhiji was saved from being killed by a mob on that occasion. So, um, what I was saying is that the nonviolent struggle is about standing for the truth. And he stood for the truth because he didn't prosecute these people. A lot of uh, the you know, people there said that you should prosecute them. And he said, no, they were not, they didn't have the information, correct information. And he then wrote letters to the press and explained what he had written in India, what he had said, 
because what he was trying to say is don't send more indentured workers to South Africa because the indenture system is not a good system. This is what happens to people when they are indentured because for five years, they are virtually under slave conditions. They have absolutely no rights, legal rights. And this is what he explained in the pamphlet. He didn't attack the white community as such, but he attacked the system of slavery. And he explained this in, the, uh, in his letters to the press. And that is how people began to know what he was doing. And a lot of people then respected him rather than, you know, regard him as an enemy. So this was one of the things that Gandhiji did. And this is how he explained the Satyagraha. He started the Satyagraha movement which was a non-violent struggle against what he thought was evil or what was not acceptable. So you firstly define what is it that is unacceptable and never in the description of unacceptable is a person unacceptable. This we should understand very clearly because he always said people do things because of their own understanding. And therefore, we have to change that understanding. So it's not the person that's at fault, but the understanding is the problem. So you separate the deed from the doer. This is what Gandhiji's you know, whole philosophy was that the doer is a person and that person has been misled or thinks differently, you can change that. So don't attack the person, but you attack the deed, what the person is doing, because his interpretation of that particular situation is different or it's misled or something to that effect. And therefore, we have to change that idea that the person has got in his mind. And that is what Satyagraha is, uh, you know, that is the meaning of Satyagraha. It means the force of truth. And so you have to discover the truth and then begin to uh, implement the truth and to those people who don't realize that what they are doing is wrong to show them that this is wrong what you are doing and to get them to change. So that's the whole idea of Satyagraha. And that is what he um, <coughs> tried to explain. Thank you. Reverend O'Brien, uh, thoughts on the same theme here? You didn't have an opportunity to, to talk about how you see what we call nonviolence movement in the carry the vision uh, mm -hmm. tradition. 
Well, you're a poet, you're um, a writer. What's the English word for what Mahatma Gandhi was was saying? Well, um, for me, and because the Sanskrit uh, has a lot of nuance that we don't have so much in English with these words, it, um, it's the force of truth, but it also means holding fast to truth, holding to truth. And so as a spiritual teacher, you know, for me, of course, part of that focus is exploring what is the ultimate truth about human life. You know, who are we really? And um, Dolores was speaking of that in her talk, and Ela, of course, has touched on it, that, you know, we, we are all equal, we are all divine beings. And so the ultimate truth is that people have equal worth, equal value. And that is um, something that we have to keep our eyes open to, where there is some um, teaching that is not true about the nature of people. Um, last night, the talk was about racism and how racism makes it convenient for people to oppress other people. You know, the only way it can be done is is through that lens. Um, and for me, you know, what is behind that is the deepest root is ignorance of the truth about all people. And so spiritually, this truth is, you know, there's a small T truth, which is the truth of what is happening, but there's a large T truth, which is the, the truth about the reality of every human being and the value and worth of every life, and the truth about our connection to one another and how vital it is, and that we cannot thrive um, at the expense of others, nor can we ultimately thrive at the expense of our planet, um, which, of course, we are seeing today. So this truth is really that we are one. We are connected with one another. We are all equally human. We are all equally divine. And uh, we are one with uh, the earth as well. And so that is the truth that we are called to live in our lifetime and think about how it is we take our rightful place in that uh, network of oneness and how it is that we live in a way that contributes to lifting up others and um, contributes to the wellness of life on this planet at this time. Did I answer the question? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, we are um, needing to wrap up here momentarily. I'm wondering if we could just ask Doris and Ela to for kind of a call to action to close, each of you just for a minute or two, if we were in 
a house meeting. <laughs> if we were in those early days of Fred Ross and the movement, if we were in the early days of, of your grandfather's movement, what would be the call to action now to the folks here, to this room? What should they do or organize them um, or leave them with one final thought about organizing themselves? Thank you. Well, I think what uh, you just talked about, truth. And I know that there's been a statement that the truth will set us free. And uh, I have been saying that I believe that the one way that we uh, solve our national dilemma, you might say, uh, is through the truth, through education. And we have the structure in our society in terms of our educational system, but we have to change the content of what we teach. And I think that this is something that is doable, uh, starting with our pre-kindergarten children uh, to talk about um, how this country was formed, how this was a brown country, when our founding fathers of the government uh, made that constitution, which we know was not a really fair constitution to begin with. But just reminding people <clears throat> that Again, as I mentioned before, that we are all one human family, that we are all Africans of different shades and colors. And I like to say to the KKK and the alt-right neo-Nazis, get over it, you're Africans, okay? Just get over it, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and you know the contributions of the people of color that built the United States of America. The Native Americans were the first slaves and David and I are having conversations about how we do a healing in our country. But first, before we have a healing, we have to have a confessional, like they did in South Africa, and led by our Native American leaders, and to forgive all of us for what we did to the first slaves in the United States, Native Americans, and the African slaves that built the White House and the Congress in Monticello, where Thomas Jefferson lived. You know, in the fact that he never released his slaves. And uh, all, all of these, you know, terrible things and all the immigrants that came to build our, our, our country, the United States. And we need to include that in our, our books, in our school books, so that our white children uh, won't be poisoned with that poison of white supremacy and white privilege. And our children of color will get the dignity that they deserve for what their people did to build this country. I think the truth. And and I think as a mission for all of the work that you've been doing for so many years, because I think I can't think of any other organization that has promoted that violence the way that you have. And uh that we include nonviolence as part of the curriculum. And uh the respect for women, you know, so that women are not have to be do not have to be victims of of uh, harassment or or rape or, or being murdered by their partners, as we know, women are, as we sit here, I like to say, somewhere a woman is being getting beaten, raped or murdered while we sit here right now. You know, so these are things that can be changed uh, through education, but we've got to take over education. We've got to take over the school districts. Uh, and we've got to, when we talk about uh, as you mentioned about getting rid of slavery, that Gandhi was, you know, his purpose, that poverty is a form of violence. 
and that the resources of our planet need to be shared by everyone. And yeah, they use the S word, socialism. If that's what it is, it needs to be, I, I like to refer to Cuba. I don't know if anybody here has been to Cuba in the audience, any hands here? All right, they will affirm what I'm saying, okay? That in Cuba, everybody has a pre-college education, everybody has free health care, and it is a very poor country. So we have to learn from these other countries what they're doing right and we're doing wrong. But I think that we can do it, but it's going to take the will, the participation of all of us in our democracy uh, to make sure that it happens. And, uh, you know, so we have an obligation because nonviolence is an obligation you know, this, this is what she said, you know. And I know my mother was a devotee of St. Francis. And uh, she taught us when we were little kids, when you see somebody that needs help, you're obligated to help them. And don't expect gratification or reward. But the resources of our world need to be shared by everyone. There's no reason why we, the richest country in the world, why we should have homelessness or poverty or lack of education. Si se puede. Closing call to action before lunch. <laughs> Give us something to think about on the way over to the lunchroom, please. Okay. I think uh, there's a quote, you know, from Gandhiji. He said that there's a sufficiency in the world to meet the needs of all the people, but not the greed of any one person. So I think that that explains that, you know, we have enough to, for, for us not to have poor and deprived people in the world. If only we could share the resources of the world amongst all the people in a way that every individual has their basic needs served, their, you know, home, shelter, medical aid, things like that. If every individual has access to those things, then you won't have so much of violence. You wouldn't have uh, the kind of strife that we see in today's world. Mm -hmm. So this was one of the things that Gandhiji was also trying to establish. And he had a economist uh, called um, Dr. Kum Kumarappa. And he has written a number of books. You can get them on the, on the internet. And it's about the economy and how people can change the economy so that every person mm has the basic needs met. And once that happens, then people are satisfied and would be happier than they are at present. And Gandhiji said that when you are starving, when your family is starving, then you can't go and talk to that person about nonviolence or about mm. anything. Mm. Spirituality, nothing can be explain to a person who is starving and that person's family is starving. So the first thing that we need to do is to ensure that all our people have, you know, sufficiency to be able to survive. To make all of this good, all of these great things happen, we have to get good representation 
people, elect people like Dave Cortese, okay? But the question I want to ask you all is a really simple one. And the question is, who's got the power, okay? And I want you to, I want you to yell out, we've got the power. And when I say, what kind of power? Please say, yell out, people power. Let's do it. Who's got the power? We got the power. What kind of power? People power. So are we going to go out there and work uh, to make sure that we change our educational system, that we spread the word of nonviolence? What do we say? ¿Se puede o no se puede? Okay, let's all do it with an, uh, with an organized hand clap. Everybody together, let's go. Si, se. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.